Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. I'm broadcasting this week's episode on Gadigal land in Redfern. We often cover stories of peoples fighting against historic inequalities on the show, but Redfern itself is a significant place of First Nations resistance and struggle. As much as we cover stories from around the world, we mustn't forget the historical and ongoing fight for First Nations self-determination across this land. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The Qatar World Cup has been the news story of the last month. A long shadow of human rights abuses have hung over the tournament, from the deaths of thousands of migrant workers to extreme suppression of gender and queer rights. Of course, others have questioned whether racism and hypocrisy shining more of a light on Qatar's issues rather than other Western-hosted sporting events. But perhaps there's something missing from this conversation. The fact that the history of Qatar and its newfound political and economic success, as with many of the Gulf states, is intrinsically intertwined with the interests of the major players in global capitalism. By understanding this, perhaps we can formulate better avenues for solidarity with those struggling for human rights across this region. This week, we're chatting to Bez, an activist, video essayist, and researcher from Europe, who recently made a video about Qatar's history, class system, and place in the imperial world system. He's going to help us understand what's really going on in the Persian Gulf region. Bez, thank you for joining us today on the Sunday Dispatch. Thank you so much for having me. For a country hosting a World Cup, Qatar has a relatively young history as a nation. Obviously, the land that makes up modern Qatar has been there for a long time, and people have lived there throughout its history. But the concept of Qatar as a nation-state with borders, economic, social, political systems, compared to most nations, is relatively new. Bez, how significant were imperial and colonial interests from overseas powers to the shaping of modern Qatar as we know it today? In the... 1850s or 1860s, the British East India Company intervened in Qatar and um, ultimately took control, the British Empire took control of Qatar, also due to the fact that it wanted to have control over the trade route. Um, and um, their trade routes to, to India were threatened by piracy, which was um, bad in the region there. So they so they went to Qatar and in uh, eighteen in the late eighteen sixties Qatar had a big power struggle for control uh, between between the Al Thani family and the um, and and the and the Bahraini family and so the UK intervened and forced a peace and then uh, ten years later uh, Qatar came under British influence. And the Althanis agreed to, you know, preserve the interests of the British there and act as a partner and, you know, give concessions to the East India Company, uh, give concessions to the British uh, Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which today is known as BPPLC, uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of the big oil giants. And um, in turn, what Qatar got was military protection. 
not only from external threats, but also from internal threats. So that was a huge, huge factor in consolidating, uh, you know, political acquiescence in Qatar, you know, securing political stability of the of the then class hierarchy, which of course lasted, could last much longer and uh, on, to this day. And uh, that, you know, that those deals then, which lasted for a hundred years until the U.S. came along, were crucial in that development. Let's move to the present now, with Qatar much more under the orbit of the United States. Despite its small size, as you mentioned in your video, Bez, you can drive from the top to the bottom of the country in about two hours. Qatar has turned natural resources wealth into an economic powerhouse status in recent decades. Its per capita income is the fourth richest on earth. They're one of the world's biggest exporters of LNG and thus one of, if not the biggest CO2 per capita emitter. I think Australia has actually been kind of battling it on and off for the top spot of biggest emitter in recent years. So what are the global economic or political forces that have allied with or have allowed Qatar to achieve this prosperity? Qatar's rise to to its uh, to its huge global power today is is not due to Qatar alone obviously uh, much many other factors contributed to this such as you know other regional powers declining such as Iraq and um, and Egypt and Iran and so on and the the regional system has opened the space and the opportunity for Qatar to make its presence felt and push forward, uh, you know, its agendas. Uh, obviously, <laughs> helped by the fact uh, that it discovered all those uh, oil and gas reserves. But reinforcing this exponential growth uh, following 9-11 was the U.S. military's departure from Saudi Arabia and its uh, relocation in Qatar and uh, you know the US invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq during which Qatar became home to to the US military central command was its largest forward operation space it was in Qatar and and you know <laughs> that was a huge factor in facilitating sort of the stability and uh, and the massive boost the massive um, support Qatar got militarily and in terms of security it could dedicate all those resources to develop its extraction technology uh, or or rather capabilities because you know technology of course initially especially came from you know foreign companies they didn't have that and um, you know that's a huge, huge factor in consolidating the the class system. If you have all that mil military support, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, how confident do you have to feel as a state leader from internal threats, from class struggle, and whatever? If you if you have this huge military base in your country, if you have these huge uh, you know contracts with security firms with all these mo all this modern weaponry this modern technology because don't forget you know the police and the military in a modern capitalist state 
such as the US overlap and having all that military technology and those, you know, those uh, strong relations, of course, of course, that, you know, can secure, you know, the sort of semi-feudal class constellation that is present in Qatar. I want to expand about a term you use, Bez, semi-feudal. What's the key behind the political power of the Al-Thani family in Qatar? So the House of Thani, which is the ruling power in Qatar, um, sort of the ruling family, uh, I make a comparison with Game of Thrones in my video. And it's sort of silly, but it's really, you know, it really is sort of, you know, feudal, semi-feudal in a way, because you have one family and you have other powerful families and they form alliances. You have one core family, like the Targaryens, in Westeros, and they form alliances with other houses based on mutual benefit. But it's sort of based around houses and families. It's it's very, you know, Middle Ages style. It's it's not at all, you know, <laughs> how class the class hierarchy um, is constituted in Australia or in Switzerland or in Germany. Uh, and um, and the House of Thani was, was founded in uh, 18... It was sort of, I mean, the family existed for much longer, but like the house, proper house was founded in the 1820s uh, in uh, what's today the territory of Saudi Arabia. And the way these houses were formed, it's just just like in Europe, um, you know, two, three, four, five hundred years ago, where you have these landowners, you have these um, powerful families, wealthy families, and they sort of you know, become this part of the upper classes and own a lot of land. And then they, you know, they want to gain more power for themselves and their children and, you know, build, you know, build sort of, um, um, how do you call it, a, a legacy. They want to build a legacy. This is the house of Thani. We want to rule, you know, our children will rule uh, our children's children and so on. And that's that's not specific, you know, that sort of tribal way of entrenching a, a landowning feudal class. That's not, you know, that's not unique. We, we've had this in Europe as well, um, you know, everywhere around the world, basically. And the theory goes that because the economy of Qatar and other Gulf states is geared towards, you know, exporting oil and gas, it entrenches it it makes the wealth of Qatar is derived from that basically like 90% like it's not derived from income tax there's no income tax in in Qatar um it's it's based on that extra and because the state and those ruling families could control those means of production uh, involved in exporting and extracting oil and gas you you have the ruling families who are who don't receive as much pressure from below, so to speak, you know, no taxation, no representation, so to speak, because you don't have taxation, you don't push for reforms and so on. And that's, you know, partly correct. And many people have criticized this, this theory, but I actually think it's, it explains quite a lot of things. If you put it in context to, to class analysis, both, you know, domestic class analysis and sort of international class analysis. They have capitalist relations now. You know, it's a 
it's a capitalist country, sort of health, it's a health capitalism, but it's not established organically. It's sort of imposed by the structure of imperialism. It's sort of a top-down capitalism. You know, it, capitalism is not built from the from the organic, you know, entrepreneurial economic dynamic, but it's in collaboration with the, you know, with the big Western investors who who want to create conditions for the functioning of their capital, of their capital export. Because of course, the the imperialists, both the British and the US imperialists, formed an alliance based on that, based on the extraction of oil and gas. They, you know, they went in there and supported uh, that ruling class as opposed to a, you know, domestic, domestic um, national uh, entrepreneurial stratum that is not, you know, born into aristocracy, but, you know, like normal workers maybe becoming richer through, you know, in tradesmanship or whatever. So it's both the, in, it's, it's both in a direct sense because they form an alliance with the feudal classes, but it's also indirectly through how the way the global capitalist system operates, the way resources are distributed and allocated, the way, you know, you have this global labor division, um, Qatar taking a role in the global economy as a gas station for the big powers and so on. So it's both direct and indirect. It, it's not I mean, in some cases, it's more direct. You have straight up invasion to protect the old classes as opposed to progressive classes, um, progressive capitalist uh, class, you know, as in Guatemala, in Brazil, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, and so on. In Qatar, it's more indirect because, of course, there are many other factors that, you know, constitute, that make up the you know sort of the class dynamics there yeah that's really interesting bez that it's not only in these gulf states but in other countries in the global south that these outdated feudal states have been supported militarily or diplomatically by western capitalist nations i guess because that top-down despotism of that political system makes exploitation you know much easier um not only progressive forces but emerging capitalists in these global south countries um, that these biggest bigger powers don't want to emerge because it might hinder their own um, wealth accumulation. The other thing that this centralized monarchical structure has provided is extreme private enrichment for many in the Althani family. Members of the family hold the bulk of ministerial positions, many of which are appointed by the unelected Amir, ruler of the country. Private enterprises are run like this big sort of family business where personal allegiances nepotism dominates the business landscape and of course the obvious corruption surrounding the world cup has made it very easy to paint you know qatar as an openly quote-unquote corrupt state but of course you know our own capitalist capitalist countries have corruption have personal allegiances um direct public and private sector contact that you know decides policies yet don't get branded with the same tag is there a quantitative distance between qatar's corruption and other countries yeah, no, definitely. I mean, as you've said, <laughs> we have, uh, you know, the class system in our countries um, is uh, it has corruption as well. It's based on personal allegiance as well. It's uh, the state and the, you know, the public and private sector are connected through a thousand threads as well. 
you have insider trading, you have, you know, people appointing family members to, um, you know, there's lobbying, <laughs> there's corruption in, in low-income countries, but there's no corruption in high-income countries. There's only lobbying, right? I mean, it's all those legalized uh, avenues of how the private sector dominates the public sector. But of course, there's still a real difference between a bourgeois economic system and a what Marxists in the 60s and 70s have started to call a bureaucrat capitalist system in countries such as Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Philippines. Um, bureaucrat capitalism is much more, the public and private sector are much more tightly knit together. Uh, you know, it's if you're part of the Althani family, you are guaranteed guaranteed a board position like if you're born into the pelosi family <laughs> or the clinton family you're also very privileged but it, it's still more difficult to uh, you know to to push the nepotism through i mean there's it's you know <laughs> it's 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 different on a qualitative level it's it's not that way in qatar it's it's really you know, liberal democracy is ideal for, for capitalism because it's all based on the free market, the free choice of people, and it, it, it's the best it's the best sort of infrastructure for capitalist relations to manifest. But of course, if you don't have that capitalism develop organically through, you know, a compet competitive phase of capitalism emerging out of you know, emerging out of entrepreneurship and sort of industrial domestic development as you had in England or 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 elsewhere in the global north, you have sort of monopoly state, you know, a monopoly type of capitalism tightly knit with the state. And, uh, you know, comparing Qatar to the US or, 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 or Germany or whatever, it also shows how, you know, we have classes too and, and, and those differences uh, are sometimes qualitative, but also just, you know, it's just quantitative. We have, we we also have personal allegiance. We also have uh, privilege due to family and so on. But it, it's it's more, as you've said, it's, most, it's, it's much more subject to competition and, you know, sort of the bourgeois culture that goes along with it, you know, meritocracy and so on. And meritocracy is not something that is as entrenched in the cultures of other states, of other countries. And yeah, yeah, there's a real difference, but there are similarities. Despite being one of the richest nations in the world, the spoils are not evenly shared amongst all people living in Qatar. Much has been discussed about the kafala system for migrant workers, where private companies quote, sponsor the living conditions and employment of migrant workers with conditions that have been described to close to modern slavery. Much has been made of the deaths of migrant workers building stadiums and other infrastructure for the World Cup. There's been this debate over the exact number of deaths, you know, how they were accounted for. But Bez, I feel like this sort of media angle is maybe somewhat missing the whole picture, which is that this kafala system really is the backbone of most of the, or the entirety of the Qatari economy. And it covers not only the workers on the World Cup, but also in, you know, the extractive natural resource industries, service workers, and so on. And actually, more than 90% of Qatar's population are migrant workers, which is like pretty incredible to wrap your head around. 
Um, so I feel like this sort of journalistic fact-checking desire to prove the exact number of stadium deaths or whatever, you can kind of get lost in it by saying and, you know, get into a game of, well, you know, it's not that many compared to this other bad country and what they're doing and so on. But in reality, it's this entire system of wage labor in the country that's like this. And once you realize that, the whole veil starts to kind of fall apart about what the economy of this country actually is. Don't know if I'm being too cynical about the reporting. Exactly. No, you're absolutely correct. Um, You know, and it's not just, you know, who, who are those companies benefiting from this? Is it just Qatari nationals who benefit from it? No, of course. There's, there are so many business, you know, the, you have Lloyds Bank, a bank in, um, from a British bank. If, if you go to their website and you're sort of interested in investing and setting up, you know, uh, setting up um, a location of your sort of, a, you know, a new location, or if you want to invest in Qatar, what, one of the things they'll say is, hey, you know, one of the advantages of doing that is low migrant labor costs. And then the other side is, you know, where are where are the, those people coming from? Uh, are those migrant workers who work for $200 a month, are they coming from Switzerland, from Zurich? No, the, the people who go there work, go work there because they have no other option. You know, as I, I've made an example in the video, how agents are sent out to, for example, in India or Bangladesh, and they go specifically in these poor regions where people have no other choice but to seek employment in states such as Qatar. Because what are they gonna what on, what are they gonna do with their what are their up, what are the, their opportunities in life? What are what is their outlook? So either subsistence farming or you know hey. You know, I'm going for five to ten years, work in Qatar, and come back, and maybe I bring more money back home. And it's sort of this illusion because, of course, because there's so much competition, um, they can those agents can allow to to pro, to offer people visas for money. So they have to often take a loan for three to four thousand dollars to buy those wee visas and get the opportunity to work in Qatar. Bez. Thank you for joining us this week on the Sunday Dispatch. I'm going to put a link up to your great video on Qatar in the episode description. Um, You can also find Bez on Twitter. I'll put links to all of that up on the program description. Bez, thank you for joining us this week on the Sunday Dispatch. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay.